So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, the first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Heavenly Father, as we start this new gospel, this new book, uh, yeah, we've been through some gospels now. We went through Matthew, we went through John, now Luke. And it is such a blessing for us to look at one after the other because we see how different they are. We see how similar they are. We see the consistency of the message, but we see the individuality of those who are writing it. So, I mean, these four Gospels are not just here by accident. Each one of them is going to teach us something more about you and more about the kingdom of heaven. So we pray that you'll bless the series. You'll bless each and every mind that is engaged, that they will be engaged, that they, they will find something as we know that they will because it's impossible not to, but find something in each scripture lesson that speaks directly to their heart. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On a cold winter's evening in the middle of a snowstorm, a little bitty tiny church uh, met in that storm to worship God on a Sunday evening in what was a small town at that time of Colchester, England. And it was so small, there were probably about 15 people who were there for the service, and it was so small they, of course, couldn't afford to sustain a pastor. So each time they had a service, someone else from the congregation, one of the deacons, or the, they didn't really have elders, uh, would stand and, and they would bring the message. And on this particular night, an uneducated, unpolished, unnamed, and certainly unsung uh, a lay pastor got up to preach. And... His uh, passage was Isaiah 45, 22, which goes like this. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now, in that very humble setting, a teenage boy had sort of snuck in the back um, as the service started. He actually had been on his way to another church, but the storm outside was howling so bad that he came upon this little church and just sort of ducked in to get out of the cold as much as anything else. But the teen had a great burden on his back. He was struggling very similar to the way that Martin Luther did with just this, this angst over his own salvation and his own sinfulness. Well, because it was such a small congregation, and it was obvious that this, this, this teenager was a, was a visitor, so it was almost as if this lay pastor was preaching directly to the one. In fact, he actually called this young man out during the message, saying, Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look. Look, a crystalline message of the gospel from the humblest of mouths struck the heart of this young man. Now, the reason that I'm telling you this story is because when we look at the prologue of Luke, we are going to notice that Luke wrote this prologue and his gospel and the book of Acts for a single individual, a man named Theophilus. And Christianity is sort of a mosaic of God using the work of the few and the one to impact the many. No one in that congregation could have possibly known the magnitude of what had happened in their little church that night. Because that teenager, as many of you know,'s name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And the Lord completely 
broke his heart that night. Now, Spurgeon, of course, everybody went home that night. They didn't know anything had happened. They just thought that a young teenage boy had come in and had responded to the gospel. But what happened? Within four years, Spurgeon was preaching at 19 in one of the larger churches in, 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 in London. And before you knew it, he was preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Tens of thousands of people would be saved through his ministry. Hundreds of thousands of people would listen to him. I mean, Every time he preached, there was a packed house. He was considered and still is considered to be one of the finest preachers ever born. He is named or nicknamed the Prince of Preachers. And even today, millions of people, your pastor included, are blessed by his books, his sermons, his devotions, his commentaries. He left such a legacy. Who would have thunk it, you know? Who would have thought it at that small little 15-person church that God would work such a great work and impact the many because of a man who remains unnamed, we don't know who he is, was faithful to the one. And that's what I want to pull out of, uh, of Luke's prologue here. Uh, you know, there's a lot of technical information that goes when we start a book, but I want to focus in on the fact that there was a tremendous amount of work that went in, and as far as we can tell, it was all for the benefit of one man. But think of the millions of people, if not billions, who have been blessed, or the Holy Spirit has blessed through the work that was destined originally for one man. Now, when we start a new series, it's always a good thing to talk about some of the details of that particular book, who wrote it, where it was written, why it was written, what the major themes are, uh, and those kinds of things. Now, I, I want to apologize again because my intention this morning was to not deal with those at all during the sermon and then to deal with them in the after church after the sermon. This was going to be the first morning of our after church. Again, for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out. We will start it next week and we will deal with some of those details because those details add richness to any study of any book. But there's one in particular that I want to make sure that we do address and that's the author, the, the, this, this physician who we call Luke. Now, we're not going to go into this morning um, whether or not Luke wrote this gospel. I mean, you know, there of course are people who say he didn't, but we are going to assume completely throughout the entire study that this gospel, as well as the book of the Acts, was written by a physician by the name of Luke. Now, we don't know much about him. We'll talk about him a little bit later on, but he remains entirely anonymous as far as whether he signed the book or talking about himself in the gospel or a little bit later on. Now, some statistics about Luke's writing, I think, are, are important and interesting, at least to me they are. And, and that is that this gospel of Luke is the longest by far of all the gospels. And even though it is considered to be a synoptic gospel, meaning that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in their content, at least a third of, of this book, is material that you're not going to find anywhere else, and he presents it in a considerably different way. If you take both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which, by the way, we're, we're studying on Wednesday night, but if you take those two books and put them together, that's over a quarter, as far as just plain old page-wise is concerned, of the New Testament. And even though we have this tremendous legacy we really don't know anything about the author. Now, there are four verses in Paul's writing, and I've given you those references in your, in your bulletin. There are four uh, passages that tell us a little bit about who Pastor Luke was. Well, I mean, Dr. Luke. He was, first of all, a physician, or at least he had been at one time in his life. Secondly, we are going to see that he was a theologian, uh, that, that he is going to bring some, some, some doctrinal uh, 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 solidarity or systematizing some of the doctrine that he's going to write about. Thirdly, actually it probably should be second, he was an historian, an excellent historian. And we're going to see that he took great cares to write a history that throughout the ages people have tried to disprove and they simply have not been able to do so. And fourthly, and most important, I think, for this morning is he was a pastor. 
And he had a pastor's heart because as a pastor, he is making sure that what needs to be written to Theophilus was actually written to him. Let me tell you one last thing about Luke. Let me just make sure you're aware of what Luke was not. Luke was not a Jew, and yet he wrote over a quarter of the New Testament. He was also, therefore, not an apostle because uh, the Jews were apostles. Now, so, so therefore, it, it's, it's an amazing statement that such an important book as Luke and Acts, the Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, that span from John the Baptist all the way to 60 or so years into the history of the church, all of those written by a Gentile. Well, anyway, with that said, I want to go through the text here because there's some in, 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 interesting information in this. And then I want to step back and I want to talk about this pastor's heart that Luke has. So look with me here. Well, before we actually do that, let me explain a little bit. Look there at that very first word, inasmuch. Now, I know that that doesn't mean an awful lot to us, but in the Greek, that is a very rare word. In fact, these four verses are different than the rest of the book because they're written in a more classical Greek. In fact, this is a classical historian intellectual, scholarly opening to a Greek dissertation, according to, let's say, Josephus or Philo or any of the other historians, they would open it with a prologue, and that prologue would be written according to a certain form. And the reason for that was to tell the world that this is a valid, important, educated, upper-learning kind of a document, and you should pay attention to it. So these four verses are written in, I guess you could go back into the Middle Ages and read some of the sort of stilted English that they have. It's kind of hard for us to read. And then a more colloquial kind of English for the rest of the book. They called it Koine Greek, which was the kind of Greek that people actually spoke in those days. But nonetheless, that kind of sets this, this um, prologue apart. Vastly different, as I said earlier, from the prologue of John that we studied, which really, you know, we, we even said then, the prologue of John, the rest of the book is kind of like a footnote to, to the prologue because he brings out so much theology and doctrine. This prologue is more to establish it in a world of that this is an historical, an accurate historical document. Well, anyway, he goes on in the first verse and says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke starts out by making the statement that um, I know that a whole bunch of other people have already done what I'm getting ready to do. I'm getting ready to compile the story of Jesus, the things that have happened amongst us. But there are already many attempts, many gospels out there. So what, what is Luke saying? Is he saying that, you know, there's a whole bunch of other people that have already done this, but they're all wrong? Or they haven't done it well? Or me, a, a Gentile physician who wasn't an apostle and didn't walk with Jesus, I'm going to do a better job of writing a gospel than, say, John. I mean, John wasn't written yet. But certainly Mark was written by that time. Whether he had it or not in hand, we don't know. Matthew was either written or in the process of being written. Uh, but we don't necessarily know who he's referring to when he says the many. It could have been Matthew, it could have been Mark, it could have been uh, some other um, uh, references that have been lost and probably have been lost. doesn't mean that they were complete. It might have been just a story here and a story there. But here's the point that I want to make. Luke is going to expend a huge amount of effort to write this book. He is going to collect this information from other people. We're going to see him do eyewitness um, interviews in a moment. But he is going to spend time writing a book that sometimes it might, it might have taken months. It might have taken years for him actually to do this. And so um, he uh, is, is, is going to make sure that... Um, uh, that the, the, the many, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm, I'm jumping ahead, um, that, that people understand the reason that he understood or wrote this. And, and, and we might as well jump back and say, well, okay, 
regardless of what he says he wrote it, regardless of why he said he wrote it, we know that it's always the prodding of the Holy Spirit who says, I want you to write this because he's driven by the Holy Spirit, as Peter said, in writing this book. But anyway, after he introduces the fact that he's going to write this narrative, that many others have written that narrative, he makes it clear, I think, that the reason that I'm writing this narrative is because it seems good to me excellent Theophilus, that I write a narrative that's tailor-made for you, that you're going to understand. There's a lot of other explanations out there, but I want you to know because this, I think, is what you need to hear in order to understand the things that actually occurred. And that's the reason that he is writing this. Well, he goes on and uh, continues that in the rest of that sentence, of the things that have been accomplished amongst us. Well, obviously, the things that have been accomplished, he's telling the story of Jesus. He's telling the story of the gospel. But I want you to notice that word accomplished is significant because the, the NIV, if you're following along in that translation, the NIV says fulfilled. But it's fulfilled in the sense that it is the fulfillment of something that has been developing for quite some time. Luke, like the rest of the gospel writers, wants us to know that this is not written in a vacuum. That this is not just about the life of a man. This is, a, this is really the story of God's redemptive plan. The overarching, if you will, meta-narrative of all of God's plan of redemption. The coming of the kingdom of heaven and where the kingdom of heaven is going. It, it's fitting it in to the overarching, the larger narrative about Jesus. Well, he goes on in the next verse to talk about how he came upon this knowledge. Look in the second verse. Just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. By the way, this is just one long thought that Luke is doing. The whole four verses is one long thought. But he talks about those. Okay, I've gotten the information. The knowledge that I have was not just something that I made up. It's not something that I heard. It is something that I, I got from the eyewitnesses that were walking with Jesus from the beginning. Now, obviously, that's from the beginning of the ministry of Christ, from the when he called his disciples together. And even before that, because he's going to interview, he's going to give us more information about the nativity and the early life of Jesus than any of the other gospel writers. So he's going back. But I want you to notice something about the language that he uses. Very similar to what Peter says in the first chapter of Acts when he is telling um, the people gathered there what the qualifications are for an apostle, capital A. This is what he says in the first chapter of Acts, which, of course, you know Luke wrote. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. Notice the similarity in what Luke is saying. And here's the point. Luke is telling us by making that reference that I got this information from the horse's mouth. I got this from the apostles. And and, and there's a focus on that. Now, he's not saying he only got it from the apostles, or I think he would have made that clear. I mean, there are other people who were there from the beginning. We know that Matthias and probably Joseph of Barabbas or called Barabbas was there because those were the two that actually filled this this um, designation in Acts and were the ones they decided between as far as being apostles were concerned. But there were other people. There there were probably his brothers. Of course, they didn't walk from the beginning, but he probably interviewed those. There were were the, the men that he had known and met along the way, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Zacchaeus. I mean, there are all kinds of people that Luke would have interviewed and and not just them, not just the men, but He would have also interviewed uh, the women, Mary to be specific, and some of the other women who were with Jesus. So in other words, when he says eyewitnesses, he is saying, I spent the time to sit down with multiple people and to ask them about what they had seen. 
Now you'll remember that in Jew, uh, Hebrew Jew, uh, Jewish jurisprudence that the testimony of two or three witnesses is how they determined truth, how they determined whether someone was innocent or guilty. And so they put a tremendous weight on the eyewitness accounts of people who were there. So Luke is just verifying. I didn't, I didn't just make this up. I just didn't hear it. This isn't just stuff that um, I collected from other sources. I mean, I might have collected some from other sources, but not all of it, because I took the time to sit down with multiple people and to have them tell me what they saw and what they experienced. And so other words, there, there, there was this, this veracity, this truthfulness to what he is about to say. He goes on and says that just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now, those are the same people. The eyewitnesses, especially the apostles, they become the ministers of the word. Now, the word there used in Luke's prologue is logos, the same word that John used in his prologue, although using it in a vastly different way. Because John, of course, was talking about the Logos, the Christ, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Luke is talking about the Word or the Logos in its gospel form. These are the ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were the ones who were sent forward by Jesus himself to be the, what we call the apostlers here, both capital A and little a. If you're not familiar with the word apostlers, it's a made up word that that you won't find in any dictionary because apostle just means a sent one. And even though we are not apostles with a capital A, we are apostlers because we have all been sent by, um, by the word of God to share uh, the word about Jesus. But nonetheless, these men were actually sent by Jesus. Acts 1, again, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And I want to remind you of what Jesus said to those men. He said in the book of John, again, in the upper room discourse, that I will send the paraclete, the helper, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have told you, and he will reveal to you all things. He will guide you in truth. So therefore, Luke is making an appeal to, even though I'm a Gentile, even though I didn't walk with Jesus, even though I'm not an apostle, I do have an historian's mind, and I am making sure that you know that I carefully compiled all of these things. And actually, he is going to, he's going to make that very clear in the next verse, uh, because in that third verse, we're going to get a good idea of, the, of some of the nature of the kind of person that Luke was. Look in the third verse. It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, in that one verse, I, I, I can learn an awful lot about the man Luke. Even though Luke doesn't tell us anything about himself, well, we can learn an awful lot about him by the way that he discusses that. First of all, this is a very personal reason that he's given. These are the reasons that I wrote this gospel for you, Theophilus. Very personal reason, as I mentioned before. It seemed good to me. Now, in a sense, what he is saying is he's saying, okay, Theophilus, I know there are lots of other accounts out there, but it seemed good to me for me to write this narrative for you so that you would, be un you would understand, so that you would have that, um, that certainty of what the truth is. So it's a very personal uh, 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 of statement as far as why he wrote the gospel. But let me just step back and, and point one thing out to you. Um, I told you that Luke was completely anonymous as far as what he wrote. This is the only reference that you will find in his gospel to himself, a personal pronoun, when he says, it seemed good to me. Now, he'll never mention himself. There's no, his name won't be mentioned. Later in the book of Acts, even though he's one of the players... He will only refer to himself using another 
personal pronoun, we. There are some of the, when he's telling about how Paul traveled around, he uses the personal pronoun we, so we know that Luke was indeed there. We know from what Paul wrote that he, he, he was a physician. We know that he was a beloved brother. We know that he was a fellow worker. We know that he probably spent some time in jail with Paul. But that's all we know because he's absolutely anonymous, doesn't toot his own horn at all. Now, isn't that interesting, though? I mean, those of you who have been here for the study of, uh, of John, you remember that John was the same way. John would, even though he referred to himself, he would never use his name. He would never actually use the name John unless he was talking about John the Baptist. He referred to himself as the disciple Jesus loved or the beloved disciple. And, and so he had the same sort of anonymity in the way that he wrote his gospel. Matthew, for him, Matthew we studied before John. And Matthew, even though he mentioned his own name a couple of times, it was just to say, okay, this is what happened when I was called follow me as a tax collector in a list of the disciples. But every time Matthew would mention his name close by was the tax collector. He never said who he was without putting that close by just to remind people of the humble beginnings that he started with. Of course, Mark, totally anonymous. Mark doesn't tell us anything about himself, except some people think he might have been that young man in the Garden of Gethsemane that ran away without any clothes on. That's just because that's just such an interesting detail to add, unless that was actually you. But nonetheless, those all of these gospel writers, brothers and sisters, are the picture of humility. None of them is talking about themselves. All of them want to make sure that when we study the gospels, we only see Jesus. And that's the way we should present the Gospels. That's the way we should talk about them to others. It's all about Jesus, and it's not at all about us. Well, the second reason that he gives in this verse is that of an historian. He is interested in writing a, a, a legitimate history. He says, having followed all things closely for some time past... Now, an historian has a, a particular way of looking at things when you're talking about good history. It's kind of changed in our day. But real history, a real historian is interested in the facts. That's what he wants to know. He wants to know what actually happened. Doesn't want your opinion. Doesn't want ideology to enter into it. He wants to delve deep and find out what actually happened so he can write the facts. And that's what Luke is doing. But here is where the physician in Luke, I think, comes out. Because physician, you know, at least to a degree, not so much then as it is now. But a physician was a man of science. And as a, as a man of science, he would go about things in a particular way. Especially in those days, a physician with no diagnostic equipment, no thermometers, no heart monitor, no nothing. The way that he would determine what was wrong with one of his patients was to interview them, to talk to them, to ask them probing questions about their life, about their lifestyle, about what they felt and what kind of symptoms they might have. They might not know what's going on inside of them, but a physician is going to learn how to probe to pull that information out. Well, that's the same thing an historian is going to do, to probe into the details of what is going on to pull out the truth. Because after all, that is what he is interested in, is the truth. Now, Luke, as that physician, was not just a collector of data. And I think you understand what I mean. You can just collect facts and kind of spit them back out again. Well, that's not what Luke is interested in doing. And that sort of brings out the next aspect of who he is, which is a, th a theologian. He puts it this way, to write an orderly account of these things that have happened, to write an orderly account. The New American Standard translation there says uh, an account of consecutive order, to write the sequential order of what occurred. I like the way the ESV and the NIV translate it better, an orderly account, and here's the reason why. To talk about a consecutive order seems to talk more of a chronologically sequential order. Now, granted, Luke does have a, a much more than, say, Matthew, who was chronologically challenged 
and John, who really wasn't interested in chronology at all, he's more like Mark. He's better as far as giving us a sequential uh, chain of events. But when he would come to a doctrinal issue, when he would come to some kind of theological issue, he would stop, sort of, and make sure that we understood it. He would lay it out in a systematic way. Now, some of you know that there are a variety of ways to study theology. One of them is biblical theology, which would be much more of a sequential way. And then there's systematic theology. Systematic theology is the way I learn theology. Systematic theology is what I teach my students in Haiti now when I'm teaching them, them theology. And that is to take the great issues, the great doctrines, God, man, the fall, Christ, the church, the end things, and to deal with each one of them in a through-the-Bible way so that we understand each one of those ideas. And what we're going to find is Luke does that. Luke is very interested, not only that you know what happened, but also why it happened and what the theological and doctrinal impact of that is in the long run. Um, But that brings us to really the one that's kind of my focus this morning, as I've already said. And that is Luke as a pastor. Luke with a pastor's heart. And I picked that out of the, the last phrase that he has there at the end of this third verse. For you, most excellent Theophilus. Just to kind of recap what he said. He said, it seemed good to me to take all of this information that we have and to compile it in a narrative for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, of course, the question comes up immediately, who is Theophilus? Well, I can definitively answer that in three words. I don't know, and actually no one knows who Theophilus was. He remains a very important figure in Scripture that no one has a clue who he actually was. Well, we can glean some things about who he was from what we read and the way Luke presents him. He was a Gentile. More than likely, he was living in Rome because Luke seems to take for granted of some things about Rome, the city, and the environments that that his reader would have needed to know. So we assume that he was there. Some people think he was a God-fearer, God-fearer meaning a, a, a Gentile who was enthralled with Judaism, and then quite a few of them came Christians. Many of them think that actually the gospel of Luke is for the God-fearer Theophilus and Acts is for the Christian Theophilus. I don't happen to agree with that. We'll kind of come back to that later on. But um, it's also pretty obvious or, or it's a good deduction that he was an official of some kind. And that's the, we, what we get from that phrase, most excellent Theophilus. Because when Luke uses that, when he puts most excellent before the name, does it twice in the book of Acts for Felix and for Festus. Both of them were governors. So more than likely, Theophilus was a Gentile Roman citizen with some kind of government office that was well known to Luke. Some people think he was a benefactor who kind of took care of Luke as he traveled, you know, to support him. And that's why Luke is writing such an account to one person. I don't think that's it either. But let me tell you what, who Theophilus is not. And I just want to make sure that you know this because you may hear this from elsewhere. The word Theophilus means loved by God. So therefore, a lot of people have said Theophilus must be the Christian community at the time because they're all loved and beloved by God. So there really wasn't a man named Theophilus that this is talking about the community as a whole. Well, I would take exception with that. I think it's exactly the opposite. And I think that that is made clear in this prologue that Luke wrote this prologue and again the book of Acts for a single individual. All this work has gone into the single individual. He is a real person. And and we'll come back to that in a moment. But that's where I see Luke's pastoral heart, folks. Because when, when someone pours so much work, so much effort, so much collection of data, and does it for the benefit of a single person, 
as we're going to see in a moment, that's the modus operandi of the kingdom of heaven. That's the methodology. That is what we are taught. And it certainly is not something that is being followed in churches today. But nonetheless, let's take a look at that last verse before we tackle that. The fourth verse. He continues and says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here comes the historian out again. I want you to know the truth. I'm not interested in ideology. I'm not interested in fiction. I'm not interested in necessarily making you believe something that is not true. I am interested in you knowing the truth. I'm an historian. I I am a physician. And I want to present this in such a way that you know that everything that I have said is the absolute truth. And he has gone to great pains to make sure that we know that. But he doesn't just want him to know the truth. Once again, he's not just spitting out um, facts. He wants the apostles to have certainty. And that's wrapped up with faith, brothers and sisters. He wants these facts, these truths, to undergird Theophilus' faith, to strengthen it. And this brings us to the concept, the Christian concept of faith. You know, we've just been through the Christmas season, and if I hear one more person or statement that you've got to believe in Santa Claus just because you've got to believe, I think I'm going to explode. But, but that's, the, that's the culture's understanding of faith, to believe in something that you know is not true. That's not Christian faith at all. Christian faith is to believe in something you know to be true. And that is why the truth that Luke is going to share with Theophilus is something that is to undergird his faith because it is all based in fact. I mean, for two millennia, people have been trying to prove Luke wrong. They've been trying to to go and say that, no, these places didn't exist and these people didn't exist. And I think you know what keeps happening to those folks. They keep getting converted because they find out that, my goodness, he knows things that no scientist, no archaeologist, no historian knows. He wrote it down exactly as it should be. So he's writing a truthful statement, but it's there so that Theophilus' faith will be strengthened. I don't think that Luke knows how many are going to benefit from his gospel, but he, he might have known. But one thing that, that I, 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 I do know is that, that there are many people who are going to be um, certain about this and many people who are going to die because of their faith. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. People might die because they're misguided or they're misled, but no one dies for something they know to be false. And so, therefore, that is what Luke is trying to portray, not only to Theophilus, but us. This actually happened. This is real. You can put your faith in it because I I interviewed these eyewitnesses. Well, anyway, this prologue ends with this last statement concerning the things that you have been taught. So that tells us something about Theophilus right there, that he had already been taught. We don't know by whom, but we know that he had already been taught at least the foundations of the Christian faith, the foundations of the gospel. Who did that? Maybe it was Paul, maybe it was Luke. But nonetheless, he has already been exposed to Christianity. I'm not among those who thinks that he's been taught and not converted. I think that already he's a Christian. And the reason I think that as we get into the gospel further, there's... There's some pretty heavy stuff in there. I mean, that's not the kind of stuff in the gospel that you would include to a man who doesn't know Jesus at all. I mean, there's some doctrinal issues and things about the kingdom that that's the kind of milk that you really wouldn't share with an unbeliever. Now, Luke gives us the model of discipleship. He shows us first that he's an evangelist, so he's going to evangelize in this gospel. He's going to have milk, as the writer of Hebrews says, when you're a brand new Christian, you just need milk to get you started. But then he turns right around in Hebrews and says, but you also need some real food because that's the only way you're going to gain some discernment. So Luke's going to give all three to a man who I believe is already a Christian. Well, anyway, um, with that said, that, that look at it, let's just back up and let's take a look at this same idea that we talked about earlier, the pastor's heart um, of, of Luke and, and how the Holy Spirit uses that. 
What Luke is doing with Theophilus, and again, I'm going to assume, even though Theophilus might have been the head of a church, there might have been other people involved, that is not documented anywhere, and it is not what is stated in either Luke, the Gospel, or Acts. So we are going to assume in completeness that Luke wrote this entire Gospel for one individual. Now, what that means is that he collected all this material, that he interviewed people, and I'm talking about the disciples, he interviewed Mary, obviously, he interviewed the brothers, he interviewed people all over for probably months, if not years, to gain the information that he wrote down in this gospel so that he could send that gospel to a single individual. That is a pastor's heart. And that's why I say he had that pastor's heart. It is also what Jesus did. I mean, it's the model of Scripture. I mean, if you go through the model of Scripture of how one person portrays what they know to another, Elijah mentored Elisha. Jesus took 12 men, 11 of them stuck. A couple more were with him when he did that. But a tiny group of people that he poured himself into. Peter, when he's sitting in Joppa, modern-day Tel Aviv, has a vision of there's a man 30 miles away by foot in Caesarea Philippi, I mean, not Philippi, but Maritime, on the coast. And, and he's a Gentile, and he's part of the Roman army, and I want you to go share the gospel with him. He dropped everything, and he went, and he ministered to the one. Now, Paul did the same way. He ministered to, to Luke, to Titus. To Timothy. In fact, he wrote an entire book of the Bible to a runaway, I mean, not to a runaway slave, but to Philemon, the owner of a runaway slave, Onesimus. So Paul is doing the same thing that Luke is telling us here. He is ministering to the one. And like I said, somewhere along the way, we lost that in, in the church. Somewhere along the way, we became completely consumed with the many. And not the one in the way that we disciple. And I've told you many times that to gauge the success of a church by the number of peoples in the pew, people in the pews, is a pagan yardstick. That's, that's not Christian. Christianity focuses and pours themselves into one person, into the person. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to a mirror now because I need to hear this constantly because I'm like anyone else. If I work all day long sometimes for on a Bible study and 10 people show up, well, I, I get disappointed, I get discouraged, and I think that my, what I'm doing is being a failure because I don't have enough people there. But that is not, that's the, that's the pagan model, folks. That is not the biblical model. The biblical model says if one person shows up, I don't care how much effort you have put into that Bible study, into that Sunday school lesson, into that sermon, whatever it is, if God only provides you with one single listener, that's enough. Because Luke spent all those years or all those months to prepare this gospel for one man. Okay, And, and, and that's the model, and we need to realize that. So I, I'm, I'm not just speaking to preachers and teachers or Sunday school teachers. I'm talking to every single one of you. Because every single one of you is given a calling. Every single one of you needs to be mentoring. There's a time that you need milk and you need to be mentored in disciples. And disciple. That is absolutely true. You don't need to be going off right when you're a brand new Christian and trying to save the world. Let someone teach you. That's why you need a good church that is going to, going to teach the gospel and teach the Bible and, 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 and be true to the word of God. Because you are on milk. But both Hebrews and Paul, they reprimand their readers because they say, you should be well beyond milk now. You should be to the solid food stage, and yet I still need to feed you like a baby. The reason being is that you are called, like I am, to mentor or to disciple someone in your life. Now, I don't care if it's one person, if it's your son or daughter or a cousin or if it's your parents or if it's the person next door or somebody at work. I mean, it, or your grandchildren. It might be somebody that you don't even count. But what I'm telling you is this is the way the kingdom grows. This is the modus operandi of the kingdom of heaven. One person telling one person about Jesus. And that's the way that the Holy Spirit has given to us. So be encouraged. You know, if you've got Sunday school and one person shows up, pour yourself into that person. I don't care if you've worked two days or three days. 
so that you can give to that one person because you have no idea how the Holy Spirit might make an increase of that teaching. You just think about that poor, uneducated, unsung pastor. On that snowy night, everyone there would have liked to have stayed home, but yet there they are, faithfully worshiping God on a Sunday night. And in walks Charles Spurgeon. But I want to stick with Luke because there's a second aspect to this. Okay, so you only deal with one. So Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom must be declared throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. He says, therefore, go out and make disciples of all nations. He sent us out as apostles. So does that mean we just kind of stay at home and we don't do anything? How does this work? How do I focus on just one individual or just a few people, whoever God gives me? By the way, I'm not saying be satisfied with one, okay? I'm not saying just can I sit back and say, okay, this person who I can talk to is the only one I need to share the gospel with. I'm not saying that either. But what I am saying is you pour yourself into each and every disciple that you are discipling and mentoring. And as a mature Christian, you should be looking and praying for someone that you can mentor. But how, how does that turn into a worldwide evangelistic and missionary effort? I'll tell you how. The Holy Spirit, folks. Not you. Okay? And then, see, that's the problem that's happened with the church is we've kind of flip-flopped it. We've said, okay, we're only going to deal with the many. And the best way for me to deal with the many is to kind of change the way we do worship. And so I'm going to make it more of a circus show. And I'm going to invite all these people in. And before you know it, I've got a church absolutely packed to the brim with pagans. <laughs> and and, 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 and the, the tendency is that's where it stops. Because they're not there so that they can know and understand and love Jesus and accept the gospel. So in other words, how does the increase occur? The increase occurs through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to take Luke as an example. Okay, Imagine that Luke was a modern-day evangelical Christian preacher. Not all of them are this way. I'm certainly not this way. But there are a lot that are just interested in building big churches and having mega churches. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a mega church. I'm just saying that if that's your objective and everything else goes to the wayside, that's not the right objective. How many preachers, how many evangelists, how many missionaries, how many true Bible studiers, how many prayer warriors are being raised within that congregation, no matter how big or how small, that's the the measuring stick. But I just want you to imagine that Luke was a, a modern-day preacher. And so he's got this, this man, Theophilus, and Theophilus needs discipling. So probably the first thing he would do if he was a modern-day preacher would be to give him a book, right? There's, there's many out there who've already written it, so I don't really need, even though they don't fit you exactly, here, we'll read the book, okay? Because this tells you what you need to know. And, and then come back and we'll talk about it. The book goes on the shelf and that's the end of the discipling. Luke didn't do that. Luke spent months developing a tailor-made gospel for a single man. Now, if Luke was a modern pastor, he'd probably jump right to where we always jump when we're telling someone about Jesus. We jump right to the cross. We jump right to redemption. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. Because you know that that's where we spend most of the time in our um, evangelism. But that's not the gospel, folks. The gospel is the story of the life of Jesus Christ in the context of the greater narrative of Scripture. And so Luke tells it from beginning to end. He tells the whole story from the birth of John the Baptist to almost to the death of Paul and the the church spreading to the outer regions of the world. And so therefore he tells the gospel, the total gospel. But you know, if if, if Luke was a modern pastor and he's just trying to to fast forward the, um, the discipleship of Theophilus, we never would have had the first three chapters. And we're getting ready to to enjoy those, to delve into those first three chapters. But, you know, if Luke was a modern pastor, why why do that? Why spend all the time writing that beautiful, poetic uh, nativity story? 
Why talk about John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth and then talking about Elizabeth and Mary and Mary's Magnificat, that beautiful song that she has. And then, of course, the night that Jesus is born and heaven's opening up and shepherds in Bethlehem and no room in the inn and being born in a manger and then all of the, of the angels in heaven and later on in the temple with Anna and, and, and Simeon. See, none of that would be included because it's all ancillary. I need to get down to the facts, right? I don't need to write this beautiful, magnificent story. Can you count the number of people who have been blessed by that story? Can you count the number of people who the Holy Spirit has increased Luke's work? I mean, how many churches over the last 2,000 years have read Luke's nativity story at, at Christmas time? Countless. And, and don't laugh at this. I mean, just think about it. How many people have watched Charlie Brown's Christmas over the years? How many millions upon millions upon millions of people who aren't Christians have watched that little cartoon? And how many of them have heard Linus recount the story of the nativity of Christ right out of what Luke wrote? That's the increase, folks. That's what the Holy Spirit does. With your effort that you do for one person, he can take and he can make it something that blesses millions upon millions. You have no idea what God is going to do with what you do. You have no idea. The people in that little bitty tiny church had no idea who sat there. One of the finest preachers to ever be born. And they're the ones who shared the gospel with him. Take that to heart. Be encouraged. Focus on the one and the few and allow the Holy Spirit to do the increase. That's what Luke is teaching us in this gospel written for the one and for the many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just sort of the upside-downness of Christianity and how different it is from our culture and, and how backwards it seems to be to so many people. But it makes so much sense because they forget about the work of the Holy Spirit. They forget about your work. This is your world. This is your kingdom. And you're the one who brings the increase. And we just need to be faithful in the little things that you give us. Just, just focus in on what you bring us. Be faithful to, to do. And, of course, that means taking the gospel and sharing it as much as we possibly can. But not forsaking every single person here, not forsaking the, the call to be disciplers. Go therefore into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that you have commanded them, even to the end of the age. Lord, we give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.